0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. There's no question that crime is up. There's no question that the sphere of crime is real and
1: growing. NYPD commanders call it targeted enforcement. Critics call it broken windows policing. They say it's discredited and inflames racial tensions.
2: It is essential that the police department take responsibility
1: I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is the show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a divided country. I'm Van Jones. I want to talk about something that is very real and personal to me, which is the fact that violent crime is going up all across the country. There are people who are going to funerals. There are street corners with balloons and teddy bears and flowers marking the end of lives for people, for real people. And to me, something like this is something you don't try to politicize. The left wing has its point of view. The right wing has its point of view. The real question is, why is this happening? What is happening in America that we have this uptick in violence and shootings and murders in America? Is it because there's not enough cops on the street or is it because we got too many cops on the street? Is it because we're giving too much money to the police and we need to give them less? Should we defund them or should we give them more money? These are charged and complicated issues. They are deeply personal to people. There's no clear consensus in sight right now. But what I know is that when real people are dying, you got to push past all the talking points and get into real solutions. And that is why this week on Uncommon Ground, I wanted to sit down with somebody who's been working on this issue for decades from the law enforcement side. Bill Bratton was a police commissioner in both New York City and Los Angeles. He's been thinking about crime reduction for decades. He actually has a book out called The Profession. Now, Bill Bratton and I, do not see eye to eye on a lot of issues when it comes to crime reduction. In fact, Bill Bratton was a New York City top cop in the 1990s. I was suing cops for police abuse in the 1990s. So, you know, we come at this from very different points of view. But with that said, I've got a ton of respect for Bill and his work in Los Angeles. He made a big effort to reach out to the community and try to reform the Los Angeles Police Department from the inside out. And so it's in the context of this that we had a conversation. And Bill has a lot to say about how to think about reducing crime from his side of the table.
0: I had predicted back then, and uh, the prediction came true, that like a bell curve, we were going to have to increase that police activity to take the city back because it was out of control, the amount of violence, the disorder, and that the secret was to do it in a way that we were changing behavior, and we did change the behavior. And in 2018, New York was the safest it had ever been. The state prison population was down by over 40%. The stop, question, and frisk that had become so controversial in the early part of the 21st century was also down by 2018. It was down around 10 or 15,000. And what was the benefit to everybody in
1: New York over that time was jobs. There's a number of things I want you to listen for in this conversation in particular. Number one, pay attention to how willing Bill Braddon is to admit that police don't always get it right, all right? He makes a case for policing strategies that can reduce crime, but he's not afraid to point out that there are times that police departments take it too far and over-police when they're trying to reduce crime. I think that's important coming from somebody who is as respected in law enforcement as he is. Also, Bill is not a cynic. He has a vision for how law enforcement can reduce crime and simultaneously help to build strong and healthy communities. I think it's important to hear from someone in his position who feels that way and is passionate about it and who has a view and a vision. And finally, near the end of our conversation, we get into the weeds on some real policy solutions. And Bill's got a perspective on some of these issues, whether you're talking about ending qualified immunity or modifying police budgets that actually surprisingly sometimes show some common ground in unexpected ways. I think that's the value of having these conversations, talking to people who are on the other side. That's when we can start getting different perspectives that we might be missing and come up with some better solutions. That's certainly how I felt after my conversation with Bill Bratton. So stay tuned so you can hear the conversation right after this break.
2: Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery.
1: Visceral, dramatic, uncompromising. The third generation Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury and is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable model yet. Combining assertive on-road performance with signature refinement, Range Rover Sport communicates power and agility. Dynamic by design, it delivers an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure, while the purposeful cockpit-like driving position of Range Rover Sport sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. I am Very, very honored to have you on the Uncommon Ground podcast. I think especially today, I just want your wisdom. I want to hear how you see stuff. I feel like we may be in the worst of all possible worlds in that there's a demand for police reform and there's so many ideas of how the police could be better. We haven't gotten there yet. And at the same time, crime is spiking. And so, you know, the worst of all possible worlds is to feel that policing isn't working as well as it could. And that crime is going up, and I wanted to hear from you, obviously having been you know, you're kind of a legendary leader in law enforcement, both as you know a tough cop who's been able to address crime in a real way, but you also have a big heart and you've got a racial consciousness that's very rare. And I just I want my uncommon ground community to have access to your mind. Why do you think violent crime is spiking right now? What is going on such that crime is going up, cops are getting shot? Uh, How do you see it, and what do you think could be done about it?
0: Well, it's a subject, as you know, of a great deal of debate and controversy at the moment, everybody trying to figure out what is going on. As far as the violence that's underway at the moment, I think it's, uh, I hope, the culmination, uh, and by culmination, usually things change after a culmination, of a buildup of a variety of influences. One, uh, certainly the COVID situation, which uh, has had a significant negative impact on our criminal justice system particularly our courts, and the ability to have trials and deal with people who are being arrested oftentimes for serious offenses, such as murders and shootings. So that's an influence, that's a factor. Second factor is the idea that there are many fewer police than we had uh, as recently as several years ago. And in many uh, places, it is felt that the police are pulling back from some of the uh, assertive, proactive activities that they would normally traditionally engage in. Thirdly, there's a whole fear at the moment that we've lost our way as it relates to some of the momentum that had picked up after the murder of George Floyd, that somewhere along the line, we lost some of that momentum. The uh, defund the police movement, for example, that was a nice political hashtag, a lot of hyperbole, but it was never fully explained in terms of the intent of some of the people who had used that term, the idea of trying to possibly think of taking funds away from the police that could be used to deal with the unresolved issues of the mentally ill, the growing problem of the drug addicted. And thirdly, there are just uh, so many of the impacted families in our society that are just not getting properly served. So there's all types of influences at the moment. I think there's a fourth one also. So many of the people who are committing the violence, and they are still a relatively small number in our overall population, but they're having phenomenal negative impact they have no fear that anything is going to happen to them in the criminal justice system. And my city, New York City, is a case in point that there were 6,000 guns taken off the streets in 2021. There was almost over 5,000 arrests for people carrying guns, using guns for a variety of offenses, including murders and shootings, multiple shootings, multiple murders. And in the whole of 2021, there were 100 criminal trials for people basically arrested for gun crime. So that means that a lot of people about walking the streets awaiting trial. Fortunately, they've begun to accelerate that process, but the criminal justice system really went into a great deal of disarray during the COVID issue. Still in disarray because COVID is still with us. Good news is uh, I'm a great believer out of crises comes opportunity, similar to what you try to do with your program. It's- it's an opportunity to try and find some common ground where we can get out of the trenches and uh, get into no man's land together and see if we can work some of these issues uh, and bring them to successful resolution. As I'm a great believer, they can be brought to successful resolution. Not easily, but it can be done.
1: You know, I feel like there's two Bill Brattons. There's a Bill Bratton that I love and admire. You know, you think about the community-supported policing. You think about how outspoken you've been about some of the racial history of policing. And there's also the Bill Braddon that I was frustrated with that's more associated with broken windows and and getting tough. And so I want to talk with you about kind of both sides of your approach and what we can learn and see if there's any common ground we can come to. Fair warning, as you know, I was one of the mentorees of Connie Rice, a crusading NAACP attorney who you ultimately wound up joining forces with and spent most of the '90s suing cops as a young attorney trying to deal with police brutality after the Riding King stuff. So I've got a point of view on this stuff. You've got a point of view on this stuff. I also also grew up in a law enforcement home. But let's talk about the last point you were making. You were saying you think there's maybe just a lack of fear. There are people out there who just feel that they've kind of got a consequence-free society now. Get out of jail. Don't even go to jail. Don't even go to court situation. Your response to that mentality a couple decades ago was something called broken windows. Can you talk a little bit about that theory and how you see it now, the good and the bad of broken windows?
0: I oftentimes use a lot of medical comparisons in discussing uh, how I deal with a crime disorder. The medical comparison I use most frequently is the one that I use to discuss the uh, crime disorder turnaround in New York City in the early 1990s, first in the subway and then in 1994 in the streets and neighborhoods of New York City. You go to a doctor, you're not feeling well, he examines you and he finds a cancer. And hopefully if it's early on, the treatment is going to be relatively mild, benign. But if they do the biopsy and find, unfortunately it's metastasized, it's now more serious. To get you well, he is going to have to effectively use more significant medicine, chemotherapy, radiation, maybe even surgery. As a cancer survivor, uh, I'm cognizant of that aspect of medicine. Similarly, in policing, a city, a community is like a patient. Now, two of them alike, and I've worked in enough cities, Boston, L.A., New York, consulted in probably 20 different countries around the world. New York City in the 1990s, after 20 years of decline, decline in quality of life, uh, the so-called broken windows language applies to quality of life, The idea of the growing amount of graffiti, every subway car covered with it, fear evasion, aggressive begging on the streets, huge numbers of homeless living not only in the streets and public parks and taking them over, but also in the subway platforms, trains, in the tunnels. And those were broken windows, signs of disorder that government did not seem capable of addressing, that because they were unattended to, they were creating fear. And the same time, there was a serious crime issue in the city that had been growing from the 60s. So, in some respects, what had happened to New York, by not addressing it when it was minor form in the 70s, early 80s, before the crack cocaine explosion, it metastasized. It became malignant. It was literally killing the city and killing many people in the city. 2243 murders, 5,000 people shot, hundreds of thousands of victims. And although New York had 7.5 million people at that time, your chances of being an actual victim of a crime were 7.5 million people, 500,000 crimes. Your odds were still pretty good not to be a victim, but everybody was victimized by the disorder, the signs of crime.
1: And so you decided to address it by getting tough on the panhandling, the graffiti, that kind of stuff.
0: I was was the first, I think, to understand that most of the focus in the 80s had been on going after the serious crime. But nobody was focusing on the quality of life. And I'm a strong adherent of Robert Peel's principles of policing, the nine of them, when he created the Metropolitan Police in 1829. The first one was the basic reason that the police exist is to prevent crime disorder. So what was different about me and several of my colleagues around the country was we were focused on the prevention of crime, not judging our success by responding to it after a person to become a victim. And it's it's pretty much the signs of crime that got us into trouble, if you will, in the public eye, particularly in the eyes of the minority community. Because in addressing that quality of life, unfortunately, so many of the people engaged in those events were minorities, the poor for a variety of reasons and circumstances. And so they were the most impacted by it in terms of the enforcement activity. And then we compounded it in some cities by effectively engaging in too much enforcement as the city was getting safer. That it was like a doctor treating a patient who was recovering from the cancer, but didn't re- diminish the chemo. He just kept adding more and more. And what did we do in New York? Unfortunately, they kept adding more and more stop, question, and frisk. And it alienated a community that was safer than it had been in 50 years, but didn't feel safer. The white community felt safer, but the minority communities, they were still getting impacted by too much enforcement, too much medicine.
1: What you're saying definitely corresponds with my experience. I was a young guy. I lived in New York in the early part of the 90s. I was a student at Yale Law School, so I did my internships in New York and spent much time in New York. You hear here during the bad old days. <laughs> well, they were bad in, in two directions because... If you were a young person of color in those days, as I was, you felt like you were being crushed between two forces, both of them hostile. There was the unlawful street violence, but there's also the unlawful police violence. There was aggressive behavior from your fellow citizens, but also aggressive behavior from law enforcement. And I think you're right. I think it did. certainly alienated me. I mean, I spent my 20s and 30s on the left side of Pluto. (laughs) I was as far left as you could get, largely driven by the fact that after Rodney King and, and that whole situation where four white L.A. police officers had beaten a black motorist almost to death with video cameras rolling and the cops got off, there's a whole generation, and I was a part of that generation, of young people who felt very frustrated that law enforcement seemed to see us as the enemy. But I think what you're saying is interesting in that, However justifiable some of that stuff may have been at the beginning, after a certain time that not only do you have diminishing returns from being so aggressive, you actually start having a backlash. I think that backlash really sets up the whole Black Lives Matter movement. People much younger than myself whose experience with law enforcement was more negative than I think society understood. And they did come out with the defund the police slogan.
0: Let Let me speak to that backlash comment because what we were experiencing in New York was a bell curve that to change behavior, to control behavior, which we want to require a lot of very assertive policing on quality of life, more focus on solving crimes, preventing crimes, and that the good news was that, like a doctor get hitting you with chemo and radiation, he's actually gonna make you sicker for a period of time. But if he gives the right amount, you are going to get better and you're gonna move on. And I had predicted back then, and uh, the prediction came true in some respects, that like a bell curve, we were going to have to increase that police activity to take the city back because it was out of control, the amount of violence, the disorder. And that the secret was to do it in a way that we were changing behavior. And we did change the behavior, people routinely carrying guns, the quality of life offenses we talked about, the aggressive panhandling, etc. And I predicted that over time, as we were correcting behavior, there'd be fewer people being summoned, cited. Going to jail, and in 2018, New York was the safest it had ever been. The state prison population was down by over 40 percent. The stop, question, and frisk that had become so controversial in the early part of the 21st century was also down. That when I came in in 2014 with Blasio, I think we had 100,000. By 2018, it was down around 10 to 15,000. And what was the benefit to everybody in New York over that time was jobs. The idea that 60 million tourists, 140 new hotels, we were in a good place. And the police department was reforming. We had the Neighborhood Coordinating Officer Program. Issues of police abuse, police use of violence, police use of force were all down dramatically. So we were we were evolving that we hadn't arrived at the destination.
1: We we're always trying to get to the destination. But boy, we'd come a long way from where we were. I can understand why you feel good about some of the turnaround there. And... You'd use kind of clinical terms about, you know, chemo hitting the patient. It's a good metaphor as far as it goes. But the experience of being a young person of color in New York at that time, Mm -hmm. you you mentioned the need for accountability, consequences, impunity. Well, the problem is you didn't see a lot of that with law enforcement. If you increase police authority and you increase the police mission, but you don't increase oversight and you don't increase accountability, you can get abuse. That's in any human system. That's why you have building inspectors. Nothing bad against construction workers or architects, but if they don't think anybody's watching, at some point buildings start falling down. And I think that what happened was that, starting in New York, but also in Los Angeles and other places, this idea that law enforcement was the chemo, was the tough piece, wound up in some important ways getting out of hand. In New York City, there were a number of very controversial killings of mostly African Americans. Abner Louima, the sodomy, the uh, the boomstick. It was uh, forcibly sodomized by a police officers in a police precinct with a broomstick. These were shocking, worldwide covered events, and it was a signal that things had gotten out of hand in New York with regard to law enforcement.
0: Well, it was the idea, again, that Mr. Giuliani and his successor, they saw the success of significantly increased enforcement reducing crime dramatically. Within 27 months, we had reduced crime by 39%, but never fully appreciated that the next phase was going to be That basically, if you make it safe, then you have the ability to really then engage more in putting police officers, as we did in 2014, into the neighborhoods, et cetera. So my desire to get into the LAPD was, one, after 9-11, to get back in the police and deal with the issue terrorism. But the unfinished business of what I was able to do in L.A. and actually took some of the L.A. models into New York in 2014, so that 2014, coming back under de Blasio, a progressive mayor, was going to be the idea to prove that this stuff could work.
2: Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com That's rocketmoney.com slash rocketmoney.com slash
3: You can power up your playtime with the Nintendo Switch system, the home of Mario and friends. You may discover exciting surprises with Mario, Princess Peach, and more in Super Mario Bros. Wonder, or challenge friends to a race in Mario Kart 8, Deluxe. You can head to Nintendo.com to learn more about the Nintendo Switch system. Games and systems sold separately.
1: I want to focus you on Los Angeles. I understand in some ways you're saying, I was tough in New York but I wouldn't have stayed tough. You leave New York, you get a chance to come to LA and prove that. I don't think everybody listening knows the stuff you did in LA. Talk about some of the stuff that in some weird way actually lines up with some of the stuff that Black Lives Matter is calling for just with a weird slogan. It's just, it's interesting to me.
0: We had uh, so much going for us at that time. We had Connie Rice. I came through the door. She said, I just need to know I've sued every one of your predecessors and I'll probably end up suing you. And I said, Connie, come in and have a cup of coffee. She never did end up suing me. And she became a partner. She came into the tent. So it was that idea of your, your show, Common Ground, the idea of Spending a lot of time going into the black community with Sweet Alice, with the uh, black newspaper that was there. But the only one I really butted heads with was the congresswoman, Maxine Waters. But even after the initial butting of heads, we kind of found common ground and uh, ended up getting along.
1: Talk about some of the things that you did. Because, again, broken windows is you've got an acute situation. You've got to go in do tough stuff. I hated it the whole time. I thought there was a better way to do it the whole time. I thought you should have been flooding those communities with we have more help and fewer cops. We disagree on that. But when you got to L.A., you did some things that are different I don't think my community knows about. Talk about what some specific things that you did.
0: Well, it was the idea of transparency and trust that quite clearly is a community that had no trust in this police force. I'll give you two stories. This is 2005, 2006 maybe. I'm there three, four years. And we're continuing to have these incidents of dealing with the emotionally ill. And... What we did was basically take volunteer police officers, give them special training on dealing with the mentally ill, and assign to them a medical specialists who were people who basically their professional life was dealing with the mentally ill. And we put them into what are called smart cars. So when we'd get a call that was clearly an emotionally disturbed person, we would try to send right away that smart car where these two people had the skills to recognize what was this person suffering from, schizophrenia, bipolar under the influence of drugs and had the ability to de-escalate the situation to a better degree than two officers who didn't have that type of training. So, so much of what's being called for now dealing with the mentally ill around the country is smart cars or, if possible, get the police out of it all together. But unfortunately, there's still so much potential violence associated with the mentally ill issues that you still need the police to be there. So there was one example of a different way of dealing with that problem. A second incident in terms of dealing with issues was the idea of the Senior Lead Officer Program, SLOWS as they're called in LA. These are officers who went into neighborhoods, did the community meetings, and gave people their phone number, their email address, and there was one SLOW officer assigned to every squad of 12 officers. So that officer kept those 12 officers informed of what was going on in the community, who were the community leaders, et cetera. We also said about, out of crises comes opportunity. Uh, we had a uh, police riot on May Day 2005, largest celebratory day for the Latino community, and they were gathered after a parade in MacArthur Park in my metro unit, which is the elite unit of the uh, LAPD. Under the leadership, unfortunately, of a deputy chief who eventually forced off the department as a result of his handling of that incident, charged into that family-oriented crowd, fired, I think, three to 400 rubber bullets at them, a lot of baton uses, And I stood that unit down. We retrained the whole departments. Uh, We did it all publicly, all transparently. And that crisis gave me the opportunity to break the back of the culture of the LAPD, the old LAPD. Because in the past, that type of incident would have been, use the expression, whitewashed. It was not whitewashed that uh, we put together our own internal review. And it was widely applauded for uh, its findings and the changes we created. Well, I I think that
1: This kind of brings me to the search for common ground part of the conversation, because over the course of your career, you start off doing stuff that, you know, the Black Lives Matter crowd and progressives would probably object to. But as you move on with your career, you start doing stuff that sounds very similar to the stuff they're calling for, a different mix of approaches, uh, a more humane mix of approaches. And yet, when they say defund the police, I think law enforcement reacted against that. Do you think that if you just take all the emotions out of it, is it the posture of a defund the police slogan that people don't like or the actual the policies of having a different mix of tools for law enforcement? What, what's what's the rub here? Are we just mad about language or is there some actual underneath there common ground around a better approach? We uh, look at it from the perspective of the police responding to that.
0: I think a lot of it was misinterpreted. What the intent was was the idea of, We need to do more to deal with the mentally ill, more to deal with the narcotics addicted. Let's take money away from the police. Let's have fewer police. And the idea is that there's just not enough money in policing as it is to properly train our police officers. The requirements that we have of these officers, we put them on the field after six months, and we want them to deal with these two societal ills that have never been addressed properly, three of them, homelessness, narcotics addiction, and the mentally ill.
1: Well, look, it's 100% unfair what we do with law enforcement expecting them to do with no training and no support things that the whole society can't deal with. Most cops, like I'm from law enforcement family. My dad was a cop in the military. My favorite uncle, uh, Milton, just retired from the Memphis City Police Force about five years ago. Most cops don't want to do all these jobs that we're asking them to do and would love to have other professionals in the community who are helping out and who are doing more. And I think we sometimes get bungled up over language. I do think it's weird, though, when you say you guys don't have enough money. In Los Angeles, the police department budget is, it's like more than half the city budget. I mean, it's a huge budget.
0: Uh, But remember I said earlier in our conversation, every city was like a different patient. L.A. is a very strange city in that the reason the LAPD budget is so large in the L.A. budget is that most of L.A.'s responsibilities in other cities are handled by the county. The hospitals, the schools of a totally separate entity that so many of the things that here in the city of New York, the reason New York has a hundred billion dollar budget versus LA's ten or twelve billion, is that New York has hospitals, New York has prisons, and all of that's funded by the county. So you can't compare. It really is apples and oranges. So LA's police budget is a much larger portion of that budget than most other cities because the city budget is relatively small because the county handles hospitals, transportation. I just
1: got to say, you know, when we talk past each other, when you say stuff like that, at least certainly here in LA, and of course the, the LA chapter of Black Lives Matter, people may not know, that's where the defund the police slogan first came from because of that mm-hmm. mix. It went like wildfire.
0: Unfortunately for the left, that slogan has and will cost them big time in the upcoming election because it's been so repudiated. But what the fuss of some of it was is more money for these other issues. And Police are in favor of that. The public's in favor of that. But we just don't seem to do it. That this idea we're going to have to, what's the expression, rob Peter to pay Paul? So we're going to rob the police to effectively create these new programs. But we're going to have fewer police in the meantime. And these new bureaucracies that would have to be created would take years to basically put together.
1: Let, let me walk you through a few other ideas that have been out there. Just to get you, I don't, I, we never talked about this before. I'm just curious, like, you know, the idea of ending qualified immunity. That was something people said, hey, you know, right now, if you're a police officer, if you beat somebody up, you burn their house down, whatever you do, you might go to jail, you might get fired, but you can't be personally sued. You'll never have to go in your own back pocket and pay anybody because something called qualified immunity. And so a lot of progressives said, hey, well, if you get rid of qualified immunity, cops might be afraid they might get personally sued. Therefore, they would act better. Is that something that you would agree to or is that something you think is a terrible idea? How, How do you see that?
0: The issue of qualified immunity has many nuances and it's different from place to place. Once again, try to find common ground there so that there is an ability to penalize an officer who is engaged in egregious activity. But under multiple Supreme Court rulings, the ability to do that is extraordinarily limited. So we're setting up a red flag, if you will, that oh, we're going to cure all these evils when in reality, you really can't change it because it basically it's, it's court issues, it's not the law. So even when they were trying to pass the uh George Floyd bill in Congress, what got it hung up was the qualified immunity that eventually killed it because effectively they couldn't find a way to deal with the way it's dealt with so differently in so many communities around the country. And it's a shame because there were so many good things in that George Floyd bill.
1: To me that's the big heartbreak. The reason why I wanted to talk with you and I'm glad that we're talking is that we could probably find fifty things we agree with. We might say it slightly differently. We might have the emphasis on a different syllable, but there's common ground there. And yet we can't get it done. For instance, qualified immunity. I thought on that one, everybody was a little bit too excited about the idea of fixing qualified immunity. On the one hand, the cops were afraid they were all going to get sued and they didn't want it. And on the other hand, people in the community thought it was going to be a cure-all. The reality is, if you create a situation where cops can be sued individually, they will all buy insurance. And the insurance companies will be the ones that have to sort that out. And so no cops are going to reach in their back pocket and it's not going to be a cure-all. So we sometimes we get these conversations going. It doesn't make sense.
0: Well, it's, it's also interesting that because of the limitations of it, the number of cases were to be applicable, very, very small.
1: And yet we tank the whole George Floyd Act over that issue. <laughs> but one thing that I wanted to just circle back around to you, though, is... You talked about how some of the law enforcement here in L.A. cut back and crime went through the roof. Look, crime is going through the roof everywhere. Where I push back on you guys is you say, well, bail reform caused the crime to go up. Well, crime went up where there was bail reform and where there wasn't. Crime went up where there was some defunding of the police and where there wasn't. And so I think sometimes we wind up, you know, people on the progressive left wind up getting blamed. Like, we're the cause for all this stuff, when in fact, I can point to as many places where Law enforcement is just as strong, just as unreformed. Bail reform is still, you know, undone. And crime is going up there, too.
0: I think, unfortunately, the crime situation in the country right now is such that, and this is some of the frustration with the prosecutors, that in our desire to try to make amends for the evils of the past and the over-policing and and over-enforcement, over-jailing, that in some respects we're giving some of the violent people in our midst a pass. At this juncture, in that we don't want to put anybody in jail. We have certain politicians here in New York that are calling for the abolition of the police. It's that type of rhetoric that damages the progressive left. You know, you can imagine the chaos. What you want is you want better trained police, you want better supervised police, you want better oversight, you want more transparency. And these are all potentially achievable. But meanwhile, we're locked in mortal combat
1: at the moment. Well, look, you know, I appreciate having you here. You know, uh, every time we talk, I learn more. And I also hope that the people who are listening to this conversation recognize that, hey, we can disagree without being disagreeable, but also there's a lot that we agree on. I think the goal is peaceful streets. I think the goal is safe communities.
0: And we all want that. That's the human
1: condition. Yeah. And I do think that. You, know, you have you know, some people in the police officers, unions often that just act like no cop has ever done anything bad and they defend any cop against anybody. They, I think, cause a lot of problems. Well,
0: it's a, in some respects, it's kind of that's the problem on the police side in that we do have, unfortunately, unions, some police chiefs for that matter. When they see blue, they see no evil. <laughs> and that that's...
1: Exactly, and then they they went up defending the indefensible, and then the equal and opposite reaction to that is, you got to abolish all the police.
0: That goes to the issue of you talked about how to, uh, changing the culture in the NYPD, changing the changing culture in the LAPD. It was just that that basically you call it like you see it. That if the cop was wrong, you know, and basically you deal with that. That you don't basically push it under the rug or turn a blind eye to it. Get a good cop, well intentioned but made a mistake. You deal with that. Get a bad cop, you deal with that. I was very fortunate. I had a great police commission to work with, uh, John Mack and others. And uh, so we had real partnership there. And it worked for, for the longest time.
1: Well, look, I'm glad that you're still on the case. I disagree with you sometimes on social media and even when we get a chance to talk. But I appreciate that you're engaged and that you listen to all sides. And you, and you know what you're talking about because you, you've been there. The last thing I'll say is the thing I like about you the most is your relationship with Connie Rice.
0: Oh, Well, very special woman. Very special woman.
1: She's a, she a no joke, tough, tough civil rights attorney. Uh, you talk about calling it like it is and, and stuff like that, and yet you know, she went from <laughs> suing the department a gazillion times before you got there to working hand-in-glove with you and making a big difference. If you and Connie Rice can sit down and bring crime down and bring the quality policing up, a lot more people could be doing that.
0: Well, the, more importantly, that by letting Connie into the tent, she also found there were a lot of great people in that tent, Charlie Beck and others that she got to work with, Fred Booker, and, you know, so she... She was able to uh, see us. We were able to see her, and she was able to see us. And uh, uh, by seeing each other, we were able to get some
1: things done. Yeah. Well, try to get some more things done going forward, and I hope to have you back soon on the Uncommon Ground podcast.
0: All the best. Thank you.
1: Thank you, sir. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful.
2: Those who become
0: American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp, to welcome them to the Golden Door.
1: You know, those conversations are always frustrating, interesting, and at the end, I I hope hopeful. You know, for me, policing is just a tough, painful topic. You know, as I often say, I, I grew up in a in a law enforcement family. And part of what happens to you when you grow up where you've got cops who are your relatives, you see the whole thing very differently. You don't see police as, as saints or superheroes from the TV shows or as super villains. You, know, you just see them as city employees. And so for me, even knowing the kind of ins and outs and the the heroism and also the dirty underside of policing just from my family, I was still shocked in the early 1990s when the police officers who got caught on videotape beating Rodney King were exonerated by a jury in California. That was a defining moment in my life. It alienated me from all of society for 10 or 15 years. Just a sense that even if somebody caught police officers violating the law on camera, in those days, you gotta remember, it was 91, 92, you know, you didn't have cameras everywhere. You didn't have cell phones everywhere. It was very rare for anybody to have a video camera outside of a bar mitzvah or a wedding. And the idea that it had been caught on film and it still somehow was okay uh, that police officers could do that to an African American unarmed motorist shocked me. And I understand. Why this younger generation seeing those images now on a daily basis on their cell phones? It's not like you gotta wait till six o'clock news to watch it. I understand why they would get to the level of exasperation and frustration to say something like defund the police, abolish all the prisons, abolish all the police. There's pain under those statements. There's analysis, there's philosophy, there's ideology, uh, there's policy, but there's also just a lot of pain. And for all my disagreements with Bill Bratton, he has been the example of a leader in law enforcement who will at least listen, who will reflect, who will self-criticize, who will say this part worked, this part didn't, this part you know went too far. And so as exasperating this whole topic is now that I'm in my 50s and have watched the issue get better and worse and better and worse and now worse again, there's a lot more common ground here than I think we allow for. I think most cops would agree that they need more help than they're getting from the rest of society and they're being asked to do too much uh, with too little and they don't want to have to solve every problem in the neighborhood with uh, handcuffs and pepper spray and firearms that they they know it's not working. Most people who live in tough communities know that we need cops, you know, better cops, better trained, more accountable. But I don't think that That many people who live in tough neighborhoods actually think things would be much better if all cops just pulled up and left. So somewhere in the middle, there's some good ideas. And to me, they're pretty simple. Number one, the police should obey the law. If they don't, nothing works. Number two, we should hold our young people to very high standards. I don't believe in lowering the standards for any kid just because they are poor or have a different skin color. I think we should hold all our young people to high standards. That's how my dad got himself out of poverty, held himself to high standards. And I think we should hold the adults to even higher standards. If we're going to hold young people who don't have much to high standards, and we should, we should then hold the adults, including law enforcement, to even higher standards. And lastly, I think that accountability is a two-way street. If we want young folks in the community to be accountable for their actions, then the adults need to be accountable as well, including law enforcement and the school boards and everybody else. And if we just hold that one standard, that everybody should obey the law, that nobody's above the law, nobody's beneath the law, that we need each other, and that no side's 100% right, I think there's a way forward, even on policing. And I think given the level of crime and what's going on right now, this is one issue that we cannot afford to give up on the search for uncommon ground. I'm Van Jones. See you next time. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adeswa Agbenile, Sundus Hassan Noli, and Lindsay Craddlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess, Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarron, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackaman.
0: Hey, Prime members! You can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com/survey.
3: Murder on My Mind, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus